This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Yeah, um, let's go ahead and move this uh, conversation on. Um, we were looking at Israel and the church. Uh, now we want to talk about the hermeneutic methodology of dispensationalists. So what are some of the problems of this rigid, literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic approach that you previously have alluded to? So as I prepared for our conversation today and just reflecting on um, the hermeneutics uh, of dispensationalism, I, I have three that I just want to point out. Um, I'm sure there's more, but uh, the three most uh, significant problems that I see with a rigid, literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic would be these. The first issue is, um, and I think it's self, it, it proves that the hermeneutic is self-defeating, uh, is that the literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic is often exalted to a level above that of Scripture itself by dispensationalists. And let me, let me share what I mean by that. Um, historically, Reformed theologians have said that our method of biblical interpretation, our hermeneutic, should be consistent with how Scripture intends to be to be interpreted. So when we come to interpret Scripture, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and we seek to interpret Scripture in the same ways that the biblical authors did themselves. And we, we justify that approach based on the evidences that we see in Scripture. Um, now, many dispensationalists uh, would claim that they wholeheartedly agree that Scripture must interpret Scripture. Uh, my old pastor, one of the best expositors I've ever sat under, I've heard him say that numerous times in sermons. But I would I would gently push back on dispensationalists that agree with that notion by saying that their espousing of a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic demonstrates that in practice they don't consistently believe that to be the case. Um, and let me get into why I would say that here. Um, in a second. Uh, most dispensationalists, let's start with the literal, most dispensationalists will say that they are just trying to interpret the Bible literally, um, and what they wind up doing is they wind up interpreting the Bible literalistically, um, and their approach to interpreting texts like Ezekiel 40 through 48, Zechariah 14, and the book of Revelation, um, what they wind up doing is they actually undermine their efforts to interpret those passages literally because sometimes the most literal way to interpret a passage is to recognize the symbolic and figurative undertones that exist in a passage. Um, so uh, dispensations are very big on genre of scripture, on the grammar of scripture, authorial intent, background, and so forth. But again, if we're talking about prophecy uh, or symbolic literature, uh, we would not want to assume that we should interpret those in the same rigid way that you would interpret historical narrative or didactic literature. Um, 
So again, there's a lot of dispensationalists that would agree. Yes, I, and Scripture interprets Scripture, and um, you know, I, I I definitely think that we we don't need to exalt anything above the Word of God, even our hermeneutic. I think in practice they show that they do just that. Um, they 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 start with the presupposition we must affirm a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. Therefore, that's the lens or the framework through which I interpret the Bible. And they, instead of going to the Bible and saying, how did the writers of Scripture interpret Scripture and, and modeling them, they then uh, come about and obtain their, their method or approach to interpreting Scripture. So that would be, that'd be the first uh, issue I see with um, the rigid literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. The second issue um, would be, uh, again, this, this gets back into the second article of the series. Um, a rigid literal grammatical historical hermeneutic uh, does not have roots within the history of how Christians have sought to interpret the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that something's wrong. Just And, and, and many uh, covenant theologians would say just because the, the history is not behind it, there's a chance that we've been wrong all this time. Well, the problem I have with that idea regarding the method of interpretation is it means that Christians have not interpreted the Bible correctly for you know, fifteen hundred plus years, essentially, is what you're stuck with, uh, and they possess the same Holy Spirit that we possess, the same Holy Spirit that wrote uh, the inspired Word of God, uh, or I should say, inspired the Word of God. Um, so for me, that's that's a problem that arises right off the bat. Um, you know, it's interesting about the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic is that prior to the rise of Enlightenment thinking in the modern era of history. Um, the church's approach to interpreting scripture, for better or for worse, was actually characterized by four observable characteristics. Uh, Dr. Matthew Emerson has done great work on this. Um, and, and again, a lot of dispensationalists would push back on this and say this was attributed to somebody like Origen. But uh, I, I, I think this has great um, historical basis for seeing. There was, a, there was a fourfold way that the church thought to interpret scripture. Not all of it was valid, per se. But there was no existence of a literal grammatical historical approach that we see espoused by dispensationalists. The church historically would seek to uncover the literal sense of scripture. That is, they would strive to understand what the human author was seeking to communicate in his writing. What is the authorial intent? The next they would try to uncover was the allegorical or spiritual sense of scripture. That is, they were striving to recognize the Bible's central purpose was to reveal Christ. And that's where Ultimately, the phrase of seeing Christ in all scripture or reading, reading scripture with a Christocentric lens has came from. It's trying to see where does Christ, where does God's redemptive historical purposes and the person and work of Christ fit into the, the passage that I'm looking into in light of uh, scripture as a whole. The third aspect of biblical interpretation was called the tropological or moral sense of scripture. That is, they recognize that the Holy Spirit intends to use the Bible to further conform Christians into the moral character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, all of Scripture can be, in some way, shape, or form, it can be a tool or a catalyst to lead us into living lives to the glory of God. Um, you know, sometimes dispensationalists, they, they get into so much of the um, the historical nuances and and the, um, you know, really just, just the factual um data of certain old testament passages and they and they and they don't connect the dots to show the listener whether a student or somebody in the pew 
of how what they're reading ultimately not only points them to the Lord Jesus Christ, but but can also impact their lives as a believer. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there's plenty of covenant theologians that make the same error. They, they, they stress so much on the data and the factual basis of a biblical text. They don't lead their audience to, to applying it, to, to lead them into a, a deeper, uh, sanctified walk with the Lord. But, um, you know, the early church was very uh, emphatic about that as a goal of reading scripture. And then lastly, uh, the fourth mark or the fourth observable characteristic of um, ancient Bible uh, tradition in terms of in terms of interpretation is concerned would be um, the anagogical or eschatological sense of Scripture. And that's recognizing that there's an overarching goal of Scripture. And, and, and that goal is that Scripture is functioning as progressive revelation from the Creator to the creature throughout every covenant epoch of redemptive history. So um, why, why do I draw that contrast between literal grammatical historical hermeneutic and that fourfold method of biblical interpretation that most of the church held to prior to, definitely prior to the Reformation, even during the Reformation, uh, in some respects, is this. Uh, the connection would be uh, in, in this particular um, light. Um, the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic has its roots in German liberal approaches to interpreting scripture. Uh, in the 18th century, there was a sizable movement um, of higher criticism of scripture, uh, the presuppositions associated with that method of biblical interpretation was that the Bible should be interpreted just like any other book. It, it undermined its supernatural origin. It placed an overemphasis on the uh, authorial intent of the human author to the neglect of the divine author's intent. Uh, it uh, neglected the theological depth that the Holy Spirit uh, can potentially have. In, in providing a passage, you know, sensus plenier, deeper sense, deeper meaning of scripture was, was all but um, eradicated by this method of modern biblical interpretation, uh, this modern approach to biblical interpretation, that is. So um, in, my, in, my, in my view, um, I, I think that just from a historical standpoint, it's problematic to, to hold to a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic because um, you're essentially left with, you're not able as a new covenant believer to ever arrive at an interpretation of scripture that the original author or original audience would not have themselves understood. And the reason why I have a problem with that is in, in places like Daniel 12, verses 8 and 9, and 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, we know there were times where the biblical writers did not fully grasp or understand what it is that they were writing and much of that had to do with the fact they didn't have a complete canon of the Bible at their disposal to look through. Um, by God's grace, we living in the fullness of times have the fullness of God's special revelation that we can look to. And by the Holy Spirit's illumination, we can connect dots and we can see things more clearly than an original author or an original audience themselves would have been able to do so. So um, that would be the second that would be the second um issue I take with the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. Uh, the third issue that I want to touch on, um, it deals with how an adherence to the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic undermines um, God's progressive revelatory purposes in scripture. Um, a few months back, as you mentioned, Austin, I completed the uh, blog series on federal vision theology. And uh, in the series finale, I, I highlighted how um, dispensationalism fails to adequately account for the nature of God's progressive revelation 
in scripture and in history. Um, I just want to read a quote that I shared in that um, in that blog from Dr. Scott Clark before I conclude this long answer to your question. Um, I think it'll it'll say things kind of tie up everything that I've set up to this point in those three issues that I have with this hermeneutic. And um, I hope that it'll draw the listener to to think more critically about, um, you know, how this hermeneutic fleshes itself out in terms of things like the relationship between Israel and the church and really just understanding how the Bible fits together as a whole. So this is a direct quote from Dr. Clark. Um, He says that for those within dispensationalism, there are two peoples of God, Israel, and the church. As dispensationalists read scripture, there is a genuine sense in which God's promises to national Israel are at the center of scripture. In this view, it is held that God intends to restore national Israel, including the temple and the sacrificial system at some point in the future. Thus, according to most forms of dispensationalism, those promises of an earthly kingdom are thought to be the norm by which all the rest of scripture must be understood. We might call dispensationalism hermeneutic an Israel-centered way of reading scripture. For most of the church prior to the rise of dispensationalism, such an approach would have been described as Judaizing. Indeed, those approaches that did seek to restore the types and shadows of the Old Testament were regarded as Judaizing in the same excuse me, in the sense that they did not properly recognize the progress of redemptive history and revelation. And that's that's the end of that quote. Um, and as Dr. Clark mentioned, you know, it just gets back to what's what's your what's the center of Scripture? Is it God's purposes for a national earthly people or is, is Jesus Christ in God's fullness of special revelation and in God's fullness of what he's accomplishing in redemptive history, culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ for the good of his people and the glory of God? Um, that's the question I would challenge a dispensationalist regarding their hermeneutic and the, and the necessary uh, convictions that they arrive from holding that hermeneutic in their approach to scripture. Hmm. Yeah, just sticking with the topic of hermeneutics and and beginning to look at at eschatology, can you can you kind of flesh out how dispensational hermeneutics affects their eschatology? And and more specifically, can you talk about something that we referred to earlier known as the two rapture theory, or as, as we call it, the two rapture theory. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, very important question as well. Uh, you know, when I first got immersed into dispensationalism, um, I was under the impression that really was just an eschatology. And uh, I think that's what a lot of people believe about dispensationalism today. Just a view of last things. But I hope that if there's anything that this series uh, at least, again, I'm not saying it's going to solve all the problems that that uh, that covenant theologians and dispensationalists uh, dispensationalists are debating. Because um, number one, I'm not equipped to to, to solve those problems. And secondly, uh, one blog series online is not going to to accomplish that. But what I do hope it does is I hope it really gets people thinking that uh, dispensationalism is more than an eschatology. It's not just an eschatology. It's a way of reading scripture. It is a way of striving to make sense of scripture holistically. It's a systematic attempt to, to figure out how does scripture fit together as a whole. Um, and, and, and I pray that dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists would recognize that just from, from hearing this podcast or listening, or excuse me, reading anything 
that um, that I write for this blog on this subject that this is this is a system that hinges together that fits together based on its hermeneutic and based on its overarching approach to scripture. So in terms of eschatology, um, there are several distinctives of eschatology that I'm going to deal with at greater length in this uh, blog series, and I'll touch on here in our conversation. The first, of course, the, the so-called two rapture theory. Um, don't think dispensationalists would like that term, and, and I'm not using it pejoratively, but I think it's accurate in light of the necessary theological consequences of holding to such a view. Um, basically, the, the, the so-called two rapture theory goes like this, or the, the dispensationalists would call it a secret rapture or a pre-tribulation rapture. Um, basically, what happens is that there'll be a time when the church, when the, when the parentheses, right, the parenthesis of the church, that period of time, uh, the, the so-called church age is brought to a conclusion and the church is going to be completely removed from the earth. They're going to be lifted up into the sky uh, to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and go with him to the intermediate state, uh, heaven, as it were, for seven years. Um, they base this view on 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. Um, they see this as a, as a quiet, uh, secret event in which God is removing the church from um, the tribulation that Christ prophesied about um, at length, they would say, in the Olivet Discourse. Now, uh, what's fascinating about this view is that um, it, it hinges um, strongly on their view of Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. Again, the 70 weeks prophecy is huge for dispensationalists because they believe that 70th week has not yet been fulfilled, and that 70th week is going to be fulfilled at some point in the future, now there's differences between a pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, and of course post-trib rapture would be historic premillennialism. But um, assuming we're, we're talking about your, your typical pre-tribulation dispensationalist, they would say that um, the church is going to be removed from the earth and everything that's described basically from Revelation 6 through 18 is going to be happening uh, on the earth during a tribulation period. Um yeah, we talked earlier about the 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 two thousand year gap, uh, the so called gap theory of dispensationalists. That that's a huge issue that uh, I see in this view. Um, leads to two returns of Christ or two second comings of Christ: the one before the tribulation to collect his church, the one after to to gather his people that are on the earth, and then to descend in glory to set up the millennium. So you've got to deal with that issue. Um, the next issue that I want to touch on here uh, is the so called great tribulation period. Um, just so you, just so the listener knows, uh, many of the approaches to the Olivet Discourse see that, um, that's, that's a substantial amount. I don't want to say all of them, cause I know there's plenty out there. I don't want to try to, to paint in broad strokes here, but there is, there is uh, great exegetical, I would say, and historical support to see, um, maybe up to the first half of the Olivet Discourse being fulfilled in the events in and around 70 AD. Um, you know, R.T. France's commentary on the book of Matthew is a great place to look uh, to, to see, um, you know, some exegetical work on this. John Gill, of course, um, uh, he, he I think he held a little bit more than half uh, on his view. But there's some there's been some great minds throughout church history that have seen uh, this so-called tribulation uh, period, not necessarily needing a future fulfillment, but that Christ was intending to notify and alert his people of uh, the judgment that was going to come on um, the nation of Israel for rejecting their Messiah uh, during Christ's first advent. But regarding dispensationalism's view of this tribulation period, 
Um, they see that there's going to be a seven-year period. Um, the first half of the seven-year period is going to be marked by uh, a future literal Antichrist figure who's going to make a covenant with the nation of Israel, uh, possibly establish like a one world order or universal peace of some capacity. And then in the middle of that seven year period, he's going to basically betray Israel. He's going to uh, essentially try to take over the world, as it were. And um, during those seven years, there's going to be intense persecution on those who will not worship him, on those who will not uh, bow the knee to him, as it were. And um, according to most dispensationalists, uh, I'm not sure about progressive. Uh, I think there might be some fluidity of views here, but definitely your classical and revised. Um, during those seven years, you're going to have 144,000 elect Israelites operating as God's primary agents of evangelism and missions work. Um, and they're going to basically be the ones to to bring about converts during these dark seven years, uh, waiting for uh, Christ, of course, to come at the end of the seven years. And let me just note this, too, while we're on the topic. Um, Jesus said that nobody will know the day or the hour when he returns. If there if there's a pre-trib rapture and these people have access to their Bible, I mean, literally seven years, all they've got to do is say, OK, from today's date to seven years, Jesus is coming back. We, did, we now know when he's coming back. I think that's a that's a huge issue that uh, dispensationalists have to deal with, particularly those who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, of course, many of those adherents would say, well, that's just referring to the, the pre-trib rapture. That's not literally referring to his second coming. But I think the context of the all the discourse is clear. Um, he's talking about his second coming. Uh, you know, he, he changes from in those days to on that day. You know, I think it's so clear uh, in the all the discourse. But in any case. Uh, moving on, another problem that dispensationalists have to deal with is their approach to understanding the second coming in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. According to verses 20 and 21 of Revelation 19, all the enemies of Christ are destroyed at his return. So in light of that reality, how do how does the how does the earth get populated for the millennial kingdom? Um, if everybody if all of Christ's enemies are destroyed and the only people left on the earth are glorified saints. How can there be a rebellion at the end of the millennial reign? How can the earth be populated with unconverted humanity? That's a problem for both historic and uh, dispensational premillennialists to deal with. Um, that was that was the first straw for me. Uh, aside from the two rapture theory, when I was pop, when I was presented with the idea that all of Christ's enemies are going to be destroyed at the return of Christ. And I had no answer to give as to how the millennium was going to be populated. Uh, that that was pretty much it for me. I was like, there's no way that I can I can reconcile this as a premillennialist of any kind. Uh, I think there are premillennialists that would say that it would be infants um, that would you know grow up and eventually lead to populating the uh, millennium. But again, I, I can't cite any off the top of my head, but I've heard that theory uh, as a possible uh, rebuttal to that challenge, but it's a very good challenge. It needs to be dealt with by dispensational and historic premillennialists. Of course, um, the, the the crown jewel of dispensationalism is the literal earthly Jewish-centered 1,000-year reign of Christ. Um, Dr. Clarence Bass uh, notes in his book, um, oh, let me go get it. It's behind me here. It's cited cited on numerous occasions during my um, series. It's his book, Backgrounds to Dispensationalism, Its Historical Genesis and Ecclesiastical Implications. 
uh, Dr. Bass notes that this, this, uh, the entirety of dispensationalism, uh, at least in its uh, classical and revised sense, and I would even say in its progressive sense, the, its crown jewel, the, the bedrock of their theology is their theology of the millennial reign of Christ. Um, they, would, they would say that the millennial reign of Jesus Christ will feature a theocratic government. Christ is going to rule over all the nations from a physical throne lo- located in the nation of Israel. Um, all the nations of the world are going to be subject to the nation of Israel. Like Israel is going to be the cream of the crop in the millennium, uh, as it were. Uh, there will be a rebuilt temple and a reinstituting of old covenant uh, temple worship uh, based on their interpretation of Ezekiel 40 through 48. Um, now, some dispensationalists have tried to state that because um, they recognize the all historical nature of that claim regarding the uh, old covenant temple worship in the millennium. They would say that the animal sacrifices are memorials of Christ once for all sacrifice for sin. Uh, but there, the problem with that view is there's explicit citation in Ezekiel's prophecy that notes that those sacrifices are for atonement for sin. Uh, so you've got that in Ezekiel 43, 18 through 27 and Ezekiel 45 verses 16 through 23. Um, so a uh, big problem there that dispensationalists have to to work through in light of their approach to interpreting Ezekiel, um, you know, personally, just on a personal note, uh, let the listener understand uh, many popular dispensationalists, uh, such as John MacArthur, uh, one of my favorite uh, pastors, uh, even to this day, uh, one of my favorite expositors, even to this day, uh, they, they are not entirely outspoken about this system of eschatology. I think this is really where the rubber meets the road in our conversations with dispensationalists. I think if you can point to them in Ezekiel, show them that, um, you know, there's there's explicit citations that say that the sacrifices are to make atonement for sin. And you try to apply that in light of the once for all finished work of Christ, in light of the book of Hebrews uh, to a context like the millennial reign of Christ. I think that can really create uh, substantial question marks for those who adhere to dispensational theology. Um, you know, I, I, I can tell you guys this, that um, when, when I first heard of there possibly being temple worship and, 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 and the reinstitution of sacrifices um, before I even really understood, uh, you know, much of what Hebrews is getting at in terms of the relationship between the old and new covenant, I just knew instinctively that didn't sound right. So I think that if, if this got brought to light, um, again, with grace and with love and respect, that would that would really facilitate helpful conversations with those who are entrenched in dispensationalism theology. And then the eternal state, um, you know, much of which we understand uh, is, is a mystery. We see, um, you know, we see dimly uh, at this point, but uh, many dispensationalists would see the uh the new Jerusalem as like a literal cube, you know, just 1500 miles high and wide. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of drawings and diagrams that are, that are presented as to what it's going to look like and, um, everything like that. So just, again, these will be touched on at greater length in, uh, the series, but, um, you see the hermeneutics affect the entire system and and greatly impact the eschatological convictions that um, dispensationalists arrive to. Well, this next question uh, hopefully will lead to some 
some charity and some honesty as we've been talking about this whole topic of dispensationalism, uh, what we think are its problems and inconsistencies. So should we regard dispensationalists as brothers and sisters in Christ? As long as any person, whether dispensationalist or non-dispensationalist, has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation and does not reject any key tenets of Christian orthodoxy, then I would wholeheartedly affirm them as a brother or sister in Christ. Um, some of my family members, closest friends, uh, and spiritual mentors to this day would identify as dispensationalists, and they are some of the most godly people that I've ever met. Um, I've had the privilege of getting to know Dr. Stephen Lawson uh, through attending the men's Bible study back when I lived in Dallas. Um, he's become a, a very dear uh, mentor to me. Uh, Dr. Tom Pennington, my former pastor back in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, Countryside Bible Church. Uh, as you heard me say earlier, I think he's one of the greatest expositors alive today. I, I, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. He's a phenomenal preacher of the Word of God. John MacArthur, of course, stalwart of the faith for, for over you know 50 years. Uh, my own father-in-law and grandfather-in-law uh, have served uh, on the board of the Master's University and Seminary. Um, they would hold uh, to progressive dispensationalism and two, two of the most dear uh, mentors and loved ones that I've ever met. And uh, my own my own um, parents are would, would fall somewhere along uh, dispensationalism still to this day. So um, there's no question that you can be a dispensationalist and be a faithful, godly follower of Jesus Christ. And I just want to say um dispensationalists are some of the most committed students of scripture. Uh, they want to know the Bible. They want to study the Bible. They get into the weeds of, of, of eschatology and, and some of the more difficult parts of scripture to understand. So I hope it can be made clear through this podcast and through my writing um, that I love dispensationalists. I consider them as brothers and sisters in Christ insofar that they don't hold to you know, a false gospel or reject uh, key tenets of Christian orthodoxy. So um, I'm grateful to the Lord for them, and I pray that uh, I can continue to enjoy great relationships with uh, the dispensationalist mentors that I have, friends that I have, and family members that I have as well. Amen. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, as we, we begin to, to head towards the close, um, what resources would you recommend to those who are, who are dispensationalists, who are considering abandoning it or or just for for those like Austin and I are who who would like to know more about dispensationalism and how to engage it absolutely uh, I've been so thankful to to have talked to um, to dr. Scott Clark and, and several others on Twitter in anticipation of writing this series um, some of the recommendations that I received were um, I'll just go down the list here this book that I grabbed off the bookshelf, uh, Backgrounds to Dispensationalism uh, by Clarence Bass. Uh, definitely, uh, as far as I've been able to see, and in terms of the reviews that I've read online, it is considered maybe the most uh, academic, uh, academically robust treatment of the historical origins of dispensationalism, particularly uh, John Nelson Darby's um, you know, upbringing, but some biographical information about him, his theology. Uh, so would wholeheartedly recommend that. We'll be citing it as I move forward in the uh, program. Uh, this World is Not My Home by Michael Williams, uh, another great book on um, just the overarching um, system of dispensationalism. Uh, Keith Matheson's Dispensationalism, Rightly Dividing the People of God, are, is a phenomenal um, 
phenomenal book. Another another uh, good book and uh, audio series would be Dr. R.C. Sproul's The Last Days According to Jesus. Um, you know, uh, he, he would hold to partial preterism, which um, at this point I have uh, I found that to be the most compelling. I'm not ready to be dogmatic on partial preterism. Uh, I would lean somewhere between partial preterism and uh, idealism, I, basically just a standard amillennial view uh, of eschatology. So still trying to work through some of the nuances of my own uh, finer eschatological convictions. But Dr. Sproul's work, The Last Days According to Jesus, is probably the most easily accessible resource for those who are just now trying to, to think through some alternatives to dispensational um, views of eschatology. Uh, and lastly, I just want to mention a couple more. Uh, Dr. Sam Storms has just some incredible resources available to be read and to be watched, uh, videos to be watched and articles to be read. Um, go just literally Google Dr. Sam Storms Eschatology. Uh, you will be blessed by devoting yourself to those resources. And a Reformed Forum. Reformed Forum uh, is an incredible uh, resource uh, for anything uh, related to uh, theology. That It's become probably my go-to resource if I've got any questions about uh, just about any theological topic. They do interviews just like you guys do. Um, with with theologians and authors uh, throughout the world, and uh, their staff has got some really good stuff on eschatology. So that that's a good place to start for the listener. And our last question for you is: What encouragement would you give to dispensationalists that have been listening to you talk about dispensationalism? Mm-hmm. Well, again, I just want to say uh, I, I couldn't be any more thankful for my dispensational brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, I just want to encourage you, as I would hope y'all would do for us um, non-dispensationalists, that, that y'all would just continue to study the Word of God, uh, to continue to strive to exalt God and His Word um, in your thinking and in your life. Uh, the, the one encouraging challenge I would give would be to, um, if you hold dispensationalism and, you, and you've studied all the issues and this is just what you think to be the best uh, way of understanding Scripture, and your conscience is bound by the Word of God, then, you know, uh, praise the Lord for that. I- I'm glad that you have resolved your convictions, uh, and I don't necessarily agree with you, but I-, I-, I can admire those who have truly studied their doctrine in light of other people's views. If you have not done so, if you've never studied amillennial, uh, postmillennial, or even historic premillennial views of eschatology, my, my encouragement to you would be don't just believe dispensationalism because that's how you've always been taught. Um, you know, many Roman Catholics or adherents to other religions have believed what they believe because that's just what they've always been taught. And that doesn't mean that it's true um, just because you've been taught by people you love or people you respect. So my encouragement would be this. Be a Berean. Go to the Word of God. Look at some of the most faithful men and women that God have, has raised up that have thought about these issues um, and, and ultimately, uh, in light of church history and in light of doing your own homework, arrive at whatever conclusions that you're going to arrive at, whether it be dispensationalism or, or an, a non-dispensational view. Um, so that would be the biggest encouragement that I would give to you. But again, uh, whether you whether you are a dispensationalist or not listening to this, um, you know, our mission is to make disciples of all the nations. And I pray that we can lock arms with those of different theological convictions to the glory of God and continue to uh, be faithful stewards of uh, our mandate as as Christ's people until he returns or calls us home. We have been discussing dispensationalism and, and particularly a new series on our blog, Covenant Confessions. That's covenantconfessions.com. And we've been talking with the author of 
this series, Dismantling Dispensationalism. Dewey, thank you for coming on and and taking so much time to both research as well as to to discuss an important and and very inflammatory subject from time to time. So thank you for coming on. Amen. Thank you guys for having me. It was an honor to, to be on this podcast. And I'm just grateful for the work that the Lord's done in this ministry, Covenant Confessions, and in both of your lives uh, for, for Christ's people in the local church and for all the people who read and listen to this podcast with uh, Covenant Confessions. So thank you for having me. And to our listeners, grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.